Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the New Books Network. I'm Jim Cates. Our guest today is Catherine J. McGar. She is the author of a new book, City of Newsmen, Public Lies and Professional Secrets in Cold War Washington. She's an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And Catherine McGar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jim. And I wonder if you could tell us, just to start, a, a, a little background on you and your book, how you came to write this book. I know you've had a, a long-time interest in politics, Washington politics especially. Uh, what led you particularly to this topic and how this fits in with your ongoing research interests? Yeah, so I've always been interested in political history and journalism. The first book that I wrote was a political biography of Robert Strauss, the, the Democratic politician sort of crossed the aisle in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then I went back to get a PhD in history. And that's when I started looking into the papers of the New York Times, which are all at the New York Public Library and had, you know, at that time fairly recently been processed. And the collection was just spectacular. The you know, papers of the publisher, Arthur Hayes Sulzberger, Foreign Desk, National Desk. And I noticed that they endorsed Dwight Eisenhower before the nominating convention um, before they even knew who the Democratic nominee would be, and that that was unusual for them. And it was also unusual for them even at that time to endorse a Republican. And so the, the first little bit of research I did was why did the New York Times endorse Eisenhower? And I started finding all these connections between uh, sort of the top brass at the Times and the U.S. military. And I also became interested in the Washington Bureau and their political and foreign policy reporting. And I kept seeing the name James B. Reston or Scotty Reston. And so that was sort of the beginning of the journey towards the book, which then looks at the, the social networks of all these foreign policy reporters in the 1940s and 1950s. So I followed Scotty Rustin to his papers at Illinois. And then, you know, you see all of his correspondence with Turner Catledge, who was managing editor of the New York Times. And his papers are at Mississippi State and Starkville, Mississippi. And so I went there and sort of traveling around um, tracing these networks. From the beginning of your book, right right from the first pages, uh, you debunk some popular, very popular misconceptions about the role of the press during the period, let's say from World War II to the beginning of the 1960s. Uh, I wonder if you can tell us what those misconceptions are, and I'm wondering whether you shared any of them yourself when you began your research and you found, your, you found yourself being surprised along the way. I think one of the misconceptions that we hold, especially maybe as academics, is that these reporters were somehow more patriotic, more gullible, more willing to um, go along with the government's line, and they sometimes just get called stenographers, um, makes them seem very conservative and maybe even unthinking, um, that maybe they had this blind allegiance to objectivity. And then I also found that there was a sense among the public um, that reporters used to be more trustworthy. Um, I, I remember checking out of the library once and I had this book on Walter Cronkite and the person who was, you know, waving me through said, well, that's, that's when you could trust journalists, you know, that's when um, you could trust the news. Um, and I was sort of skeptical of, of that uh, narrative as well. 
So I, I did start looking into it more and I realized that the story was more complicated and that yes, sometimes they did print the government lies, um, but they didn't exactly do it willingly. And they had a lot of things sort of constraining them in this period, including um, the, the social constraints of just operating as a reporter in what was then and is still now in many ways, a small town and a one company town. And I also realized that no generation um, is just somehow dumber than another generation. Um, And so it just didn't sound right to me when I would see all the criticism of someone like Scotty Rustin. Because, you know, how dumb would he have had to be to have trusted John Foster Dulles? And then you go back into the paper, who was Secretary of State under Eisenhower, and then you go back into his papers and you realize he did not trust John Foster Dulles. Um, He didn't much even like um, John Foster Dulles. And reporters had a lot of trouble with both Dulles brothers in particular, um, Foster at State and then his brother Alan Dulles at at CIA. So I was seeing these um, behind the scenes papers that were really complicating, especially that story of, of, you know, blind gullibility. If we go back a little bit, uh, which you do, you, you, you start out with, uh, it was Arthur Kroc, right? The, the, uh, the Washington bureau chief for the Times, who came there during the 30s and basically described his his arrival in Washington. So he said he felt like he was arriving for the start of some sort of prison term. Uh, Washington was was provincial and hot, and it was a one industry town, and it was set aside. And of course, it was deliberately built in the first place to be an isolated place. This presumably was going to purify the politics there. And uh, uh, you describe Washington, uh, even in uh, even during this Cold War time, as, as a very unique physical space, which I find interesting. You talk about the physical space and the flow of information. And it led me to think, yes, this is very, very different, even from New York, which is something of a hothouse, because it is that one industry town. And this physical space shaped the flow of information in some unusual ways. Can you talk about that? Exactly. So, you know, Washington, as you said, was was founded, it was a manufactured town um, to be this capital and to be a place where not, people wouldn't even stay year round. They would just be there when Congress was in session, um, which is how it was, you know, for over 100 years. Um, and it means that it was very the men there were very quick to form to form friendships, to form bonds. And it also meant that it wasn't a very attractive place for a newsman to be. It wasn't as exciting as it would have been in New York. And the city wasn't like other capitals like London or Paris, where there had already been a city and there was an art scene and there were intellectuals. And you know, Washington didn't have any of that. They had sort of a high society that that ran the social calendar. They were called the cave dwellers, the ones who had been there this whole time. Um, And so when the New York Times asked Arthur Kroc to go run their Washington bureau, he didn't want to go. He put up a big fight. They sort of gave him no choice. Um, And so he went and then he would start, he immediately started complaining um, and he would write letters to the publisher, Adolph Ox, and the publisher's son-in-law and successor, Arthur Hayes Sulzberger, saying how terrible it was in Washington and everyone's so limited and there's no intellectuals and all anyone talks about are gridiron dinners. 
And the Gridiron Club, which is a club of just sort of top Washington newspapermen, um, is something that I found to be one of those important spaces where information gets exchanged. I also thought it was funny that Arthur Kroc was always bad mouthing everyone's obsession with the Gridiron Club because he was a member of the Gridiron Club and he was a very prominent member and um, he took it very seriously. And he basically was writing, you know, in 1931, I guess I'm stuck here unless I leave feet first. Um, And uh, then in 1933, Franklin Roosevelt is sworn in and comes to town and brings with him a ton of people um, in his government, covering his government, all these new agencies. And the New Deal really revives um, Washington and and it has its its largest population boom up till that time. And suddenly, um, Washington seems like a pretty good place to be. And Arthur Kroc ended up staying there for the rest of his life, Um, handed over the bureau to Scotty Rustin in the 1950s and remained a columnist, um, but really saw himself as an important Washington figure. And so going back and reading those letters from 1931 are kind of funny. And also reading letters from his rival, uh, the columnist Walter Lippmann, who um, early in the 1930s lived in New York and didn't want to go be the New York Times Washington bureau chief, which he apparently had been offered first. And he sort of wrote Arthur Kroc a condolence letter when he got the job saying, you know, it's really important what you're doing and I'm so sorry you have to be in Washington And then, of course, a few years later, uh, Walter Lippmann moved to Washington, too. And it was sort of, you know, the exciting place to be for for journalists, for economists, um, and starting to be also for intellectuals, as Walter Lippmann fancied himself. Yeah. And uh, Lippmann's an interesting figure in here. I did uh, years ago, I read Ronald Steele's biography. And uh, Lippmann was kind of set apart because he, he wasn't really a reporter, you could definitely call him a journalist. I know he'd been the, the, the editorial page editor at the New York World way back when. Uh, but I recall your, uh, uh, you mentioned his comment when he finally left Washington. He said, I, 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 can't th- I, I can't think here. I can't write. You know, I have to get out. And he went back to New York. So he was sort of the, in a way, well, like you say, he was a, a, an eminence grease of the the. Of, of the press corps, even though he was somewhat set apart. He was really kind of a public intellectual. Uh, World War II comes along. Um, I was particularly struck. Uh, well, you, I, I remember as, as a graduate student, you know, always being told war changes everything and war changes everything very quickly. It's a crucible. It brings people together who otherwise would not have been together. And they all come together for a time and then they split apart and they disperse and they take those ideas home with them. Uh, but World War II, just fascinating in that way, in the sense that you know, isolation ran, isolationism ran very deep in the 1930s. And all of a sudden Pearl Harbor comes along and not everyone is on board. That's a, a maybe another historical myth we share, uh, which is not entirely true. Not everyone was on board, but many people did climb aboard. Uh, one of them was was uh, was Arthur, Hay- Arthur Hayes Salzberger, the, the publisher of the Times, who wrote really a, a very prescient and incredible memo right at the start of the war. This is back in, I believe it was back in 39, um, when the Germans were, were on the march and essentially saying that peace as we know it was over. Uh, even when the war was over, peace as we know it would not 
come back. And that from now on, we were at, we had to be on a war footing. He was uh, anticipating the rise of a permanent national security state, which I think is, is pretty remarkable for someone looking ahead in 1939, really. The, and a lot of people got on board with this, and the press, of course, did too, with this what you call the internationalist uh, outlook. But the war sort of uh, crystallized that for a lot of people. You speak of Edward R. Murrow and his uh, cohort, which did include uh, Walter Cronkite, of course, eventually. And uh, so this was the beginning of this idea that uh, it was what was Salzberger's term? He said, we need to be somewhat ruthless about this if we have to. So he's talking about not just preserving the peace as in, you know, oh, peace is great and all that, but preserving the peace as a way of extending the influence and the power of the United States beyond the war and extending this through influence. And this this was the beginning. This set the template for the Cold War to come. Is that right? Absolutely. I think you're exactly right that he anticipated the national security state. But then, of course, that's not a coincidence because he then sort of helps build support for that permanent national security state very actively. He realizes that being publisher of the Times gives him a very large platform. And he says, you know, in these in these private memos, it's the duty of the New York Times to prepare Americans for what is to come which, as you say, isn't peace as they used to know it. And there's this uh, phrase in this time period, especially after World War II, called waging peace. And they talk about waging peace like they wage war, and that there is this permanent um, military, and that the United States is going to have these permanent military bases everywhere. That um, there's especially support for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and you know huge support for General Eisenhower, who was the first one to run that NATO army and had been you know an important general in World War II, and so this is sort of all of a piece of this uh, push against the isolationism of the 1930s, which I think we do have that sense that it went away with Pearl Harbor, and of course it didn't. The people who were fairly isolationist before returned to isolationism. Some never stopped being isolationists. And in the 1950s, what I see in these Washington, from these Washington reporters is a concentrated effort to tamp down isolationism, sometimes even pretending that there was no isolationism in the country, which is partly where we get this idea that there was an internationalist consensus, that there was a Cold War consensus, when in reality, they hope there is one. They would like there to be an internationalist consensus. They would like there to be a strong Western alliance, especially with France and Great Britain. And they would like the United States to use um, their influence to get raw materials, especially from um, France and Great Britain's colonies and former colonies. Um, But they know that there is not necessarily that widespread support for the US to be the superpower. And so they're constantly trying to present the news in ways that will support their internationalist idea. You write of what you call a two-tier system of information. Uh, I guess we could say early in the Cold War. Um, and uh, I should say as way background, there's not a lot of U.S.-Russia stuff in here. There's not a lot of atomic bomb. There's not a lot of Joe McCarthy. There's not a lot of House Un-American Activities Committee. It's not 
the U, this is more about the press and U.S. power abroad. So this is this is a fresh take. This is not our usual uh, Cold War template story. So. Uh, and, and I mean that as a compliment. It's it's different. It's different. It's good to come to a book and say, "Oh, this is a this is a fresh take. This is different than I expected." And you talk about the two tier system of information, which is fascinating. There are hundreds of reporters in Washington, from newspapers all over the country, the the foreign press, the black press, which was uh, uh, an entity all its own because they were excluded from other organizations. And just about anyone could come to a press conference, uh, probably more so than today, because I know the White House press room today in the West Wing is very, very crowded, and they have to have a very strict credentialing system. Back then, they held them in an auditorium, and uh, you've got that picture of Truman on the, on the cover of your book with the reporters. And lo and behold, you can see a woman in the audience. You, you recognize there's the hat. And um, so just about anyone could come to a press conference. Someone noted it wouldn't be surprising if someday a Soviet spy posed as a reporter and went to a press conference. And of course, the, the key thing is they found out things at press conferences, but not all that much. There's a two-tier system of information. And there are maybe, I didn't count, I don't know if you did, maybe about two dozen reporters who are part of this insider network, and they vet each other, uh, they, they, they give each other admission to this, it's sort of a club, and they rely on these backgrounder events uh, uh, held at prominent people's homes. Uh, uh, Eugene Meyer, publisher of the Washington Post, would host these events. Sometimes they were dinners. Sometimes they were smokers. I guess everybody had a cigar in those days. Of course, they were exclusively white and male, and they were off the record, but of course, done for the idea that that information would be spread and a particular particular views would be spread. Uh, what surprised me was how much reporters actually shared information. You know, sometimes in the form of like carbon copies on this stuff. They debated, you know, what was important, what was not. And they also agreed on what you call an acceptable sphere of consensus in the story. So they were not unanimous and they certainly were not being spoon fed, but it's almost as if they were part of the news management system themselves. And that's unusual. So the, the two-tier system you're talking about started in World War II, and it really started around military information, where there was not a good relationship between members of the press and members of the military, especially the higher-ups in Washington and at the New Pentagon. And so they needed, they were complaining about censorship and self-censorship, and they needed some sort of a way to make the relationship better between the government and the press. And so a couple of people at the same time started, you know, piloting this system of background information, sometimes off the record where the information can't be used, but um, often on background where someone is sharing information, but they can't be quoted directly and it can't be traced back to them. So um, Ernest King, Admiral Ernest, Ernest King, who was um, running the Navy, was especially unpopular with reporters. And, you know, I have one reporter who wrote back to his editor saying, like, you know, I had heard he was cold as ice and, um, you know, very unfriendly. And so one of his friends, who also had friends who were members of the press, got together for a dinner at his home. 
Um, and they ended up repeating these dinners throughout the rest of the war. And as you said, it's only very particular men trusted by each other who come to these meetings. And there are about two dozen by the time it ends. They sort of rotate through in groups of, of 10 or so. And it's all um, white reporters and it's all male reporters because that is who they deem trustworthy. And if they're sharing sensitive military information, they need to be trustworthy. And this system of information then continued into the post-war period. So someone who was important to those early meetings was Ernest Lindley, who was a Newsweek, Newsweek writer. And they came up with something called the Lindley Rule, which you know then went on to be the name for background sessions, not for attribution sessions, for at least two decades. They were still calling it the Lindley Rule um, in the 1960s. And so all of these dinners, you know, that had happened with with King or with General Marshall, then continue in the post-war period, some again with General Marshall. So when George Marshall became Secretary of State and he needs to sell the Marshall Plan, this European recovery program, he already has these relationships, these sort of, um, you know, informal formal relationships with these reporters who, you know, gather around in his office or have meals together or meet at hotels. And as you say, they don't, it's not that they all agree and they certainly don't want to be used as mouthpieces for the government, but they do want to maintain the peace and maintain the Atlantic Alliance. And they talk about the best way to do that. And uh, uh, one anecdote you relate in the book that I found absolutely amazing was uh, the fact that FDR took a train trip across the country during World War II and reported, what was it, 1943 or something, was it? I don't recall the year. Uh, I believe it's actually during the war. Early on. It might have been even 42. Okay. But it was during wartime. He traveled across the country by train. Reporters not only were not, uh, not invited along, you know, they didn't have a car on the train, they also were barred from reporting this and barred from reporting on the existence of this trip, as, uh, purportedly for national security reasons, which I think is pretty amazing. You know, the idea of this train pulling up in you know Omaha or wherever and everybody saying, wow, I didn't see anything in the yeah. newspaper about yeah. this. The reporters and, were really annoyed by that. Um, we remember I would think that they so, had, yes. Yeah. We remember that they had such a great relationship with FDR. And I mean, yes, you know, overall, they they did like um, FDR, but there was a lot of frustration with him, especially in this wartime period. Um, and as you say, they felt like they were being made to look stupid where, you know, the president would, would pull up in a town and there was nothing about it in the newspaper and people couldn't understand why. And so this is one of the, the times when all these different men from all these different newspapers and radio stations and magazines, they all get together at one of their hangouts, the National Press Club bar. And they write this formal letter of complaint um, to to Roosevelt. And so they sort of start acting as a group a little bit more than they had before. There had always been collaboration. And you even mentioned that they would sometimes share carbon copies of their stories. That was something called black sheeting, which was uh, even more common in the 1930s. And it was where a reporter would share the carbon copy of his story with someone who was not in direct competition with him. And then that guy would file that story as if he had written it himself. And the editors back home were none the wiser. 
And there were very few, um, you know, papers or stations that were in direct competition with each other at this time. And so it was, it was very common to try to be helpful um, to each other. And, and they were constantly doing favors for each other and making sure they got into each other's clubs. And, you know, a, a couple of them have, have boys in the same Boy Scout troop. And um, there's just a lot of camaraderie, even among these supposedly competing newspapermen. You, uh, as you note, the the title of your book was chosen for a purpose: "City of Newsmen." Uh, there were women in the press corps, but these these organizations, the Gridiron Club, uh, uh, were open exclusively to white men, and they had restricted memberships. And also, this this less formal group of these these insider reporters who went to these dinners and smokers. Uh, they were referred to themselves and others as gentlemen, and of course, you know, we we trace the the his, history of that. You know, we think back uh, on the history of that, and, and there's a particular term for that, uh, or a particular definition for that during this time. Um, as you note, um, they did not all come from privileged backgrounds. In fact, probably the majority of them did not. They possessed a, a lot of what you term, and I like this term a lot, synthetic social capital, which is to say they. They came up in many of them in places like Kansas and Iowa and uh, Indiana and went to the state universities, stood out, obviously, for being smart, found their way to Washington, uh, ingratiated themselves with the social network, but they were not born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Uh, They did, however, you know, they shared common characteristics and they and and these, of course, uh, you know, people melded together, people like. Walter Cronkite and Scotty Reston and Edward Murrow. These are people from fairly ordinary backgrounds, but they knew the rules and they knew how to play this game. So, so what were the common characteristics of this group of, uh, you know, a couple dozen gentlemen, as they call themselves? So I'm using Pamela Laird's term, um, the synthetic social capital that she found in the business world. Um, she wrote about sort of this um, pull discrimination where people are pulling in others like themselves into clubs, into the business world, and in this case, into newspapers. And so the the men in this book who have this synthetic social capital, they were they were called good mixers. You know, they they mix well in company. Um, you know, they they knew how to be polite. They were willing to play the game. Uh, they had they had nice wives. They had nice children. Um, and you know, they were sort of uh, willing to be. These these gentlemen, even though, as you say, some of them came from very ordinary, um, or even you know, extremely humble backgrounds. You know, Murrow basically came from poverty, um, and so they develop relationships with each other, and then through their newspapers get this synthetic social capital. So, if you work for the New York Times, no matter where you came from, you've got some prestige just by virtue of working for the New York Times. And it was a prestigious posting, you know, to be at your newspaper's Washington bureau. And so just by virtue of their jobs, most of these men had this synthetic social capital. And as you also say, there are plenty of women reporters at this time. There are plenty of black reporters at this time, and they're in Washington as well. But they're not being led into so many of these spaces. Um, the National Press Club, which is all male until the 1970s, um, all white until the 1950s, and even the White House Correspondents Association, which does allow uh, women and men and women of color to join them to cover the White House. 
but they kept their banquet stag until the 1960s. So women who pay dues to the WHCA still can't attend the annual banquet. Um, And so newspapers are not going to risk assigning a woman or person of color to the foreign policy beat or to the national security beat. It's, they wouldn't be able to get this kind of information. And so it creates um, sort of this situation that propels itself then for you know two or three decades so that it's always the same group of men pulling in similar types of men. And Scotty Rustin was really famous for recruiting heavily from the Harvard Crimson and you know getting a certain type of, of fellow. And even though he had not gone to Harvard, he sort of respected uh, the imprimatur. And you know the only time he ever uh, hired a woman to do this this fellowship with him was during the Vietnam War because he was worried that whoever he picked uh, was going to get drafted away. Um, and even the woman he picked also had written for the Harvard Crimson. It was a, a Radcliffe girl. Um, and so they um, they get there, they get the social capital, and then they, they start uh, sort of recruiting along very similar lines, and it reproduces itself in the city for, for decades. Mm-hmm. To, uh, to, to judge the, the climate, one, and I guess maybe I, I shouldn't have... Uh, 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 I, I shouldn't have been surprised by this, um, uh, but uh, I, I was quite struck by the fact that, that the Gridiron Club had blackface performances up until the mid-1950s, complete with the, the dialect and all. And I think, wow, uh, it's about the time of the Brown decision. So you think, okay, this was the beginning of this wave of the civil rights movement. But this shows, you know, just how un- unusual and exclusive a gathering this was. Right. So blackface was common in, in men's clubs, you know, up through this period and even a little bit later. And the gridiron was a men's club and they put on skits and songs and parodies. And as you say, they had blackface characters um, up through the 1950s. And of course, no black members, um, who might have explained to them why they should not be doing that. Um, and they would use it to do things like, um, you know, they they sort of poked fun at the Truman Doctrine, where they were saying that all a country has to do is pretend to be communist, and then the United States will just send them all the money they want. Um, and you mentioned earlier that this is not a group of men particularly um you know, obsessed with with Joseph McCarthy or McCarthyism, and if anything, they just see this as as an annoyance, um, where a lot of their best reporters are getting taken away from the important work to have to go cover these these hearings. Um, it was a much bigger deal in other parts of the country, and especially in New York for for reporters. Um, not as many Washington reporters who get pulled into this. Um, but we see where they're they're making fun of anti communism you know, in the late 1940s and sort of making fun of the idea that um, anti-communism is going to just be used as an excuse um, for the United States to sort of exert its power all over the globe. And so one of the biggest myths that I found in this book was that the Cold War was about anti-communism for everyone and that it was especially about anti-communism for these reporters. 
And I found that not to be the case. There's there's one reporter whose papers are here at the Wisconsin Historical Society, Joseph Harsh, who was on CBS, and he was also a reporter for the Christian Science Monitor, um, as you know, a very prestigious paper of its day. And uh, he wrote this one letter to a reader saying, don't worry about all the anti-communism talk. No one actually believes it. They're just saying it so that Congress will, will pass their measures. And saying, like, even if Truman believes it, don't worry, George Marshall doesn't believe it. Um, And, you know, even through the Eisenhower era, where there's this understanding that um, anti-communism is just the excuse um, to to exert power and influence um, around, including, um, you know, Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just uh, back just for a moment to the, the question of the black press at the time. Um, I, I was very struck by your story of Ethel Payne of the Chicago Defender, um, one of the, the the great black newspapers of the era, and the the various uh, uh, obstacles put up in her way, and her typing away at, in her own apartment because she couldn't afford an office, and et cetera, et cetera. Can, can you tell us a, a little about little bit about her and the barriers she faced? Uh, she's sort of one of the 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 unsung heroes of the time. Yeah, she was a fantastic reporter, and I really enjoyed um, dipping into her papers. And And she once wrote uh, a chapter of a book on Black reporting, and her chapter was called The Loneliness of the Black Reporter. And that just captured so well some of what she was dealing with, which was um, oftentimes sort of left to fend for herself. There weren't other um, reporters for the Chicago, Chicago Defender helping her cover her beats. And so she was pretty much covering everything by herself. So she would have to go to the White House to the press briefings and then run to the State Department for their press briefings. And you know, she was the one covering the Pentagon. And so she was she was always working and just had less time to be social and as you said, was also working at home. But at the same time, there was this um, enough black reporters in Washington that they formed their own press club, the the Capitol Press Club. And they held their own um, background lunches with with sources and and would write about them for for black newspapers. And so she was a part of that. Um, But she and another woman also would sort of complain about this, particularly this one black reporter who was the first to integrate the congressional press galleries. He was the first to integrate the National Press Club. And they they complained um, that he was always sort of still trying to keep them out of these spaces. Um, they, they thought he was quite conservative. They thought that he was sort of in the Eisenhower administration's pocket. Um, and, and they didn't like that he was not supportive of other black reporters. So, so there is um, also a black reporting community. And then just as in any community, it's not monolithic. And, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of distrust also among that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, in studying this era, uh, you, of course, have to look at the, the parallel tracks, what else is happening at the time. This also is the era of, of post-colonialism. And the, uh, this was the, the time, uh, uh, you know, of course, when, when Britain's empire was coming apart after India in 1947. And then, uh, uh, you know, one by one, uh, especially in, into the early 1960s, we would see many of these colonies become independent. And... This was this was another era 
area that was was tied in with the Cold War. And the United States had to navigate this. The, the U.S. wasn't going to come out and say, you know, we, we think these colonies should stay as they are, obviously. Um, but this this there was a conference in 1955 in Bandung, Indonesia, and the delegates tried to build the framework of, I guess, what would later be called the non-aligned nations or or that they wanted to go beyond this dichotomy of either you are with the Soviets or you are not with them and talk about the differences between rich and poor, northern and lower and southern hemisphere. And uh, uh, the State State Department was not real keen on the Bandung Conference and, and sort of told reporters, well, maybe it's not all that important, and, and, and all but encourage them, you know, just just kind of downplay this, will you? Which I find kind of striking. Yes, before Bandung happened, so as you say, it's this uh, conference of African and Asian nations who um, are trying to, you know, exert their independence and their non-alliance and, you know, were part of uh, what at the time was called that third world, right? It's not the free world. It's not the slave world, as it was called. It's this third non-aligned, not wanting to be a part of the Cold War world. And of course, that doesn't help John Foster Dulles's narrative um, that the whole world either has to be communist or anti-communist. And so he does tell reporters, you know, like, don't even don't even mention it. Um, certainly don't cover it as much as you covered the conference that I just went to that was sort of my pet project, CEDO, um, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. Um, and, you know, of course, black reporters did cover it anyway. And then there was a lot more writing about it when they got home. But I think that reporters, to a certain extent, um, did follow what Dulles was hoping for. There's um, every year the Associated Press um, puts out a report of how it did and sends it to all of its member newspapers. And the report for how it had done that year before said, I think we were so busy trying to find the Cold War angle in this Bandung conference story that we missed the real story, um, that we missed the story of these, these non-aligned nations and their independence. And then in terms of um, anti-colonialism, as you say, the United States uh, needs to be coming out on the side of um, independence um, for these nations who are declaring independence, and, and publicly they do so. And privately, they're trying to give Great Britain and France as much support as they can. Um, and they need the raw materials from those colonies and former colonies um, just as much as, as Western Europe does. And, and the United States partly wants those raw materials for Western Europe. Um, you know, Western Europe had been destroyed in World War II. It's still recovering in the early 1950s. And so, um, you know, part of being so dedicated to this NATO alliance um, means being a little more pro-colonial than than they might otherwise have liked to be. And um, I do see, I, I think I expected some of these reporters to be more anti-colonial than they were. Um, and instead they're saying things like, you know, we've, we have a bad track record. We've never been anti-colonial. We've always been hypocritical and we need to just sort of keep going in this direction because this is how we're going to keep world peace. Um, so definitely never saying, oh, the United States is a force for good in the world, always recognizing um, the United States hypocrisy and still wanting to promote um, Western Europe and themselves. And this, of course, applies to the Marshall Plan as well. And I, 
Uh, I admit I am probably as guilty as many scholars are of thinking of the Marshall Plan as specifically being a plan for Western Europe. And uh, I actually, myself, I traveled to, uh, to what was then a divided Germany in 1987 under the auspices of the, the Marshall Plan, uh, the German Marshall Fund of the United States. And uh, so we think of this as a plan for Europe, but it, it, it wasn't, it didn't have to be just a plan for Europe. And, uh, you know, there was some pressure uh, there as well that, that uh, uh, you, you know, this, the Marshall Plan was, was rebuilding Western Europe. Uh, you mentioned countries, well, such as Great Britain, where things, conditions were just as bad in 47 as perhaps they had been during the war, except that no bombs were falling. Uh, but yeah, we were looking for access to raw materials. And I re- remember you saying it, someone actually drew up a list of a dozen or so countries. Here's what comes from each of these and why we need uh, cobalt and manganese and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the Marshall Plan gets tied up in this as well. Yes. And it's it's unbelievable because the headline for this story that you're referring to where these are the materials we need, the headline is these are the materials we get from Western Europe. But then when you actually read the story, none of the materials are from Western Europe. It's all from their colonies. Um, and... And you're right. Also, there was pushback at the time, um, especially among black activists, black intellectuals and black reporters um, saying, you know, why is the Marshall Plan only supporting Western Europe? The war was fought all over. The war was fought in Africa. And we need a Marshall Plan for non-white nations as well. And so there is a realization at the time that it's happening that this plan is only for the white nations. And there's this narrative that the reporters that I write about are complicit in of talking about civilization and the white nations being the heart of civilization. And that's what we need to rebuild um, at the expense of the independence for for the colonies and former colonies. Um, There is later a program called the Point Four program, which I think is less remembered, which um, is for um, the nations that are at that time called developing nations and um, it's just never as generous, and it often is redounds to the benefit of those those former colonizers and the United States. It was mm-hmm. not a success. Now, the Dulles brothers. Um, the airport is named for John Foster Dulles. Is that right? <laughs> okay, I did. I, it occurred to me, I, you know, reading your book, I thought, is the airport named for both of them? I, I'm not sure now. Uh, John Foster Dulles at the State Department, and his brother Alan Dulles at the CIA which, of course, it started as the OSS during World War II, uh, they come in for some fairly rough treatment in your study. And apparently they weren't all that well-liked by many reporters as, as well. You, you mentioned Scotty Reston. Um, uh, do you think the Dulles brothers were particularly duplicitous or were they merely typical of, of U.S. officials in the way that they shared a lot of half-truths? They withheld a lot of information. They, in, to use today's parlance, they put a lot of spin on things, and sometimes they outlied. They outright lied to reporters. Were they uh, unusual, or were they outliers in that regard? It seems like they were unusual for lying to reporters. So it's not unusual for U.S. officials to be duplicitous in their public statements. Um, But since the 1940s, reporters had really come to expect that officials would tell them the truth, be frank with them, and maybe doing it off the record or on background, um, but that they would not lie directly to reporters. 
And so I think it really, you know, uh, reporters really started um, getting annoyed when not only would the Dulles brothers lie to them, they would then go on the record um, discounting stories that had already been in the news. And this was especially a problem for reporters on the ground in other countries, like in, in Europe. And they would report back something to the Times. Uh, one of the Dulles brothers, or John Foster Dulles, would, would deny it. And then the New York Times New York office felt like it had to issue the denial as well. And so it's it's really hard to get much straight information out of a newspaper in this period because there's this constant and confusing thread of, of lies and then reporters trying to correct the lies. And then, um, you know, there's this one packet that I found in the Times' archives where Arthur Kroc is so angry that the State Department has been lying so much. And he sends these three articles and all these memos and he labels the articles A, B, and C, and he sends them to the publisher. And you've got a letter from the publisher to the managing editor saying, like, what what is he trying to say? What is going on here? And the managing editor said, he's just trying to show you how often the State Department lies to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really rankled and it only got worse as the Eisenhower administration were on. And then, of course, Alan Dulles continued into the early part of the Kennedy administration with that Bay of Pigs invasion where there was, um, you know, more lies to reporters. Um, Reporters sometimes later would tell this story of um, they always thought the government was telling them the truth. And so when something like the U-2 incident happened, when Gary Powers' uh, plane was shot down in Soviet airspace, and at first the United States denied that we had been spying, there were some reporters who later remembered, um, you know, we just believed them, we believed that cover story, and we can't believe the government was lying to us too. Mm -hmm. And at the time, they knew the government was lying to them too. They had been on the inside. They knew they knew these weren't weather balloons. Um, you know, they knew that we were spying on the Soviets. And so I think that um, they, in trying to maybe be on the right side of history later, they might have misremembered um, how complicit they were in the government's lies. And so they, they preferred being on the inside of the lies, where again, the government might lie to the American people. And the New York Times even explicitly says, we will print whatever the government says, even if we know the government is lying, as long as because they want to take responsibility the, for it. the paper of record. We are the paper of record. And lies are part of the record, I guess. Sometimes. Exactly. But and, <laughs> and but not calling them out. And of right. course, um, you know, all, all us historians who use the New York Times in our work need to know that um, they a lot of a lot of what they printed they knew to be a lie, mm-hmm. um, but again they like to be on the inside of the lie, and the Dulles brothers are starting to to lie to them as well. What's interesting is that our sometimes too rosy view of John F. Kennedy uh, apparently extends to press relations too, and I, I guess this is uh, maybe a. Something that you would, you would naturally expect with a martyred president. I was was talking to my wife about this, and she said, "Remember, Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus a couple times too, and you never hear about that too much." Um, and it, it, with the Bay of Pigs, which of course was a just just a, a, a colossal flop in, in so many ways, and then later on with. The, the Cuban Missile Crisis, as one reporter put it, this is not just some little Cuban escapade. This is nuclear war we're talking about here. Um, uh, 
things were very tense with Kennedy. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we could certainly anticipate had Kennedy lived, they would been they would continue to be very tense as especially as Vietnam heated up. Right. They, you know, they tried to warn the Kennedy administration, the New York Times, um, you know, had this all this information from their guy on the ground in Cuba. They were trying to warn how badly this this Bay of Pigs exercise where they were, you know, training these, um, you know, Cuban rebels in Guatemala to go back and try to topple Castro um, and and telling them how badly this was going to go, um, both with with Cubans and with the American people. And then, of course, it went forward anyway. And then when it did go forward, Kennedy tried to blame the press um, for the disaster, you know, saying, well, maybe if you had actually reported on it as you should have, we wouldn't have gone in. And um, that then became the story, and it became the story for many years. But we know now, of course, that um, the New York Times did print the story. They had printed it twice. Um, They did uh, take out the CIA's name from the story upon the CIA's request. And this is one of the biggest differences between this sort of pre and post-1961 period is we suddenly start seeing a lot more coverage of the CIA named as the CIA. So uh, some of the CIA escapades were reported and reported sort of surprisingly thoroughly in the 1950s. It's hard to find that in a news search because it's never being referred to as the CIA at Alan Dulles's request. Um, so the New York Times did comply with that request to take out the CIA's name as they had in the past, but they still ran the story and said that this was going to be happening. Um, and so, you know, it, it really wasn't a surprise to anyone and it certainly wasn't the, the press's fault. I think I also, I spent so much time with Scotty Reston and, you know, of course, Scotty Reston has his, has his issues, um, especially with the way he was treating, uh, women staffers at the times, um, but he he was a very you know upstanding moral fellow, um, and he he thought that um, you know the sanctity of marriage was really important, um, and I think he really disliked the fact that Kennedy stepped out on his wife. Um, I just think he wouldn't have liked him as a, a human being, um, and so yes, Kennedy did have a, a few very high profile friends in the press. Um, I think we think of maybe Ben Bradley as being sort of one of his chums. But among these sort of working reporters, these foreign policy reporters, and even someone like Rustin, who at that point was was bureau chief, um, you know, didn't I don't think really um, cared for him that much, and especially didn't like being blamed and lied to. Mm-hmm. Now, you were in, in the end of the book, the the whole deal kind of unravels. We see uh, it's amazing to think that f- from the Bay of Pigs to the Pentagon Papers is only ten years which is a relatively short span of time in Washington. And the deal unravels. We see the rise of a more adversarial culture. Uh, We see uh, the rise of, uh, I don't know if one can say that that, uh, uh, Linda Johnson and Nixon, you know, lied more than their administrations lied more than previous ones had. But the, the idea of this sort of, the building of consensus um, it is really starting to fray at the edges. And even within organizations, like say at the Times, you have uh, Harrison Salisbury and uh, David Halberstam, who maybe kind of go a little bit beyond the established line in terms of, say, what is happening in Vietnam. And then later, of course, 68, 
tumultuous with the 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 uh, uh, the election, the Democratic convention, uh, the assassinations, and then uh, it's it's in seventy one. Uh, I don't know if you've read this. It's a fascinating story. Richard Nixon learned of the publication of the Pentagon Papers when he was dancing with his daughter at her wedding. Ah, I didn't realize that. Uh, as, uh, someone, I, I don't remember, it may have been Henry Kissinger, just taps him on the shoulder and said, you know, you might want to hear about this. And of course, Nixon was, was enraged. And uh, this is when things really start to fall apart in, in terms of any kind of consensus, we, we think of the adversarial press and we think of this as its rise. And of course, this has been a, this has been a long time building. Vietnam was a big part of this and civil rights and distrust of government. But this was in kind of the way this would be, I guess, the next chapter. I think so, but I think that you really do see the roots of that next chapter in the story that I tell, where there's already a lot of distrust between the government and the press. It's just that the press is not publicly writing about that distrust, mm-hmm. um, and they're not publicly calling out colleagues who they think are acting irresponsibly. Um, Arthur Hayes Sulzberger is, you know, very security-minded and. Um, his, his uh, son-in-law and then son will be taking over as publisher in the 60s. So there's sort of a new generation in town. Um, so there, there are certain things happening in the 1960s that will then lead to a willingness to more publicly um, criticize the government and to criticize news. And so suddenly you've got, you know, the Columbia Journalism Review is one of them or more magazine. And as you say, the rise of this critical culture, as Michael Shudson has written about, where we're suddenly these these critiques aren't new. They had just been happening behind closed doors and suddenly they're happening in print and that, that credibility gap is widening. Um, and the Pentagon Papers uh, really is just sort of um, another moment that we should have expected as the press is realizing that it, it cannot keep covering up for the government and that what they were trying to do in the 1950s was, was untenable. Mm-hmm. From, uh, to kind of wrap things up here, um, from one press historian to another, um, I, I, of course, one thing we do is we always read the acknowledgments first. Um, and then we look at the sources, then we look at the notes, and then we actually look at the text because we want to know about the process of how the book was put together. And of course, I found this very interesting looking at your list of archives and, uh, you know, having done quite a bit of archival research myself, uh, it, it must have been fascinating seeing, oh, okay, who is this? Oh, Scotty Reston. Well, his papers are at, was it Illinois? And then other people, Indiana, the Truman Library, the Eisenhower Library, uh, the various archives in Washington uh, and in other places. Um, This must have been a really fascinating journey for you. And you must have found yourself probably going to places you didn't know you would go to until you saw, oh, my gosh, the so-and-so archives are there. Because what you're doing is you're putting together uh, contemporaneous events like Oh, well, he wrote this in the paper. But on the other hand, he wrote this letter to his mother. He wrote this in his diary. And uh, many of these people, particularly the the bureau chiefs, would exchange these very long memoranda with their publishers, which are now, thankfully, many of them preserved. And this, of course, is how you get this whole idea that, you know, the, the, the truth, whatever that means, 
is being kind of negotiated and worked out on, on a daily basis. And so there must have been lots of, uh, obviously lots of dead ends because you run into those, but at the same time, some of those wonderful aha moments in the archives where you, where you look at something and think, oh, this is going to be in the book. Yeah. And this can is you describe a, that a bit? Yeah. yeah, this is such a fun period for press history because of those memos, because telephone calls were still kind of expensive. And so it's not like the Washington Bureau is constantly going to be calling the New York Bureau. They're constantly writing memos and then sometimes sending wires. And so because we then have um, you know, all of these records, I then get to see what those constant fights were between the Washington Bureau and the New York Bureau or between um, you know, Wally Duell. You mentioned um, someone writing home to their mother and I think you're probably referring to Wally Duell, um, who you know no one remembers, and he wasn't that important of a figure. He was, you know, a reporter on the ground uh, writing for foreign policy for St. Louis Post Dispatch and some others. Um, and he wrote his mother a really lengthy letter every month, explaining everything that had been going on at work and at home and in the city of Washington. And um, you know, he talked a lot about Scotty Reston um, to his mother, and he'd be like, "Well, you know, Scotty only files a story once a week, and I don't want to work at that pace, and so I'm working with my editors." And you just you really get a, a sense um, of the community that they've got through these these written records. And there certainly were places I thought I wouldn't, you know, would never go. Um, Russell Wiggins, who was managing editor of the Washington Post, his papers are in Orono, Maine. Um, and I think that might have been the farthest flung um, of these papers. And of course, I'm I'm always so glad when I then find, you know, the the same memo. I had maybe there was a dinner on you know May fourth, nineteen fifty four, and I had seen a memo in the the New York Times's records. And now I get the same memo from the Washington Post records, and then I can compare them and see what all these um, different men thought about this exact same meeting with John Foster Dulles. Um, or the background sessions with Admiral King, I'd been hearing about these sessions, you know, all, all over the place, um, all these different sources, but it wasn't until, um, you know, well past my dissertation, I had started work at UW and I was, I was looking at Joseph Hirsch's papers and I found this picture, which is my favorite picture I found um, the whole time I was doing it, a picture of this celebratory dinner in October 1945, where all these men who had been part of this background series pat themselves on the back and celebrate Admiral King, and they call themselves the surviving veterans of the Battle of Virginia because they had been in the Virginia suburbs. Um, and I just love this picture of this one long banquet table with all of these middle-aged white men, reporters, and then Admiral King um, celebrating something I felt like I had come to get to know so well. And, and I loved, I loved finding that picture right at the last minute before we went to press. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you were, do you have to negotiate the rights to the images as well? We did. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the libraries are, are really helpful, um, mm -hmm. you know, trying to help figure out the, the provenance of some of these images. Mm -hmm. Archivists, some of the most wonderful people around. Yeah. Yep. Couldn't have done it without them. There's, you know, there's one man, um, he's not in my book a ton, but he is there somewhat, Robert Allen. And, you know, I went to the Wisconsin Historical Society and I said, you know, what are some underused papers? And they said, well, Robert Allen kept a diary really detailed. It's all typed. No one uses it. 
Um, and through, so Robert Allen, you know, had, had no filter, especially in his own diary and would just say the meanest things about all the other people in Washington and was really harsh on Nixon, especially. And I think I sort of got a sense of how much reporters really already hated Richard Nixon in the 1950s when he was vice president Mm -hmm. because of, of Bob Allen. Um, so yeah, there was, uh, you remember the, the, the pumpkin papers, that was that was where they found the the microfilm in supposedly inside a pumpkin, and Nixon was tied up with that. It was the it was like one of these the great Alger Hiss. Yeah. Alger Hiss. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, did, I did some writing on Alger Hiss, and uh, yeah, that's right. The pumpkin papers and Nixon was yeah. Uh, he was already Tricky Dick in the 50s, except except I heard, I saw him referenced as Tricky Dicky, so had that nice rhyme rhyme when it started out. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I wasn't ever, I wasn't surprised that press relations got so bad under Nixon because they were already bad with Nixon in the fifties. Oh yes. He was, uh, oh yeah. Well, that's, that's many, many, many more books. As for you, what's, what's next for you? You look ahead. Do you go ahead in time or do you go back? Do you look at the same period? Are, Are you a specialist in a time period or in politics itself? Or what are you thinking? Um, I'm I'm thinking of looking at the Council on Foreign Relations and some of the associated institutions and looking maybe at a broader time period that includes the one I've already looked at, um, sort of 1930s to 1980s, um, and looking at the relationships between um, members of foreign policy institutions and academia and the press, um, and sort of tracing out some of the networks in New York um, in much the same way I did in Washington, but, uh, haven't only just started that research, um, on sabbatical next year. And Mm -hmm. and we'll be doing some more archival research and trying to, you know, trace a new set of, of networks. Very good. Well, thank you so much, uh, Catherine McGar, Catherine J. McGar, your (laughs) official byline, uh, author of city of newsmen, Public Lies and Professional Secrets in Cold War Washington. That's published by the University of Chicago Press. And thank you so much for talking with us today. And good luck with your professional work. I'm looking to uh, looking forward to uh, hearing more good stuff about you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I enjoyed it.